0: Turning back to the Word of God today into the book of John, John's Gospel, the fourth chapter, and we're looking at verse 35, John 4, and the verse 35. Say not ye, There are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look in the fields, for they are white already harvest. We're taking the topic today, roosting in the future. And if you're kind of thinking, well, what's that about? What does that mean? Well, I'm hoping with the first quotation, uh, we will understand fully what roosting in the future is about. John 4 and 35 Let's, with the Word of God open before us, bow together again in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, we have come with Thy Word. We thank before for Thy holy book, the Scriptures of truth. Otherwise, no one uncalled called in the book the oracles of God. Men today may consider themselves to be the oracle on certain things. And we have experts in many fields. But as always, we are told by God the Father, as he did in that grand announcement this is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. And so we are turning to the actual words of the Lord Jesus Christ today. And we pray that we will be given grace to follow the counsel of the Father. Hear ye Him. For our prophet, for Thy glory, we ask these things. Amen. It was Pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he used to be in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington in London, and he said, many unbelieving Christians are forever dwelling in the past or seeking to roost in the future. What did he mean? Well, Spurgeon back then, and other since, was referring to that band among the children of God. And they've heard of God's hand working in history. And they have listened many, many times to the marvelous and mighty revivals, the accounts of them that maybe they've read, heard someone dilate late upon. And they've maybe got a pamphlet or a volume, and they've poured over it, and they've read about all those works of grace, of the Lord's glory, in a large scale in former generations of time. And as they read or as they hear, they're filled with awe, and they're thinking, this is marvelous, wonderful, wouldn't it be tremendous to see that again? And I'm going to say, well, what's wrong with that? Of course, nothing is wrong with that, absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's only but natural when we hear recounted before us the marvelous works of a mighty God that we should think that was wonderful what happened in the past. But then what often happens, sadly, is this. The same individuals, having thought of what God has done in days gone by, they look forward far into the future, way down the tunnel of time, and they dream about some kind of a repetition, having just read or heard about a revival, some kind of a repetition of that, those earth-shaking, devil-defeating, God-honoring days, and they think about it, oh, it would be wonderful if that could happen, and it's in far-off years that they're imagining it could happen pretty much when they have stopped breathing in their present bodies, when a new halcyon age has dawned somehow upon the world, perhaps then, hopefully then, perhaps then, those moments of revival that have been enjoyed and experienced in the past will be repeated once more. And they're considering, you know, history moves in cycles. The future. Look to the future. It may happen in the future that's their cry. But as far as God working any wonders in the world today, converting thousands now, seeing that strong arm of the Almighty made bare, now, as Isaiah described it, they discount that as being a fanciful notion. And so, their consideration, their thoughts on the subject, they'd run something like this today, you know, is not the time. We must have patience. We must be prepared to wait. This is not the man. This is not the hour. This is not the place. We must hold in there until, under other circumstances, in a future day, we can confidently look for these grand results, but we cannot expect them now. This is not the time. And you can see that mindset our Lord highlights it here in John 4 and verse 35, there are yet four months, and then come with harvest. And while that would have been true here in the natural realm, it wasn't yet time for a physical harvest. Our Lord is going down a spiritual line and thinking of a harvest of souls that are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. How many people are saying that effectively today? Or if not actually saying it, they're certainly thinking it. It is often the general feeling that has permeated the ranks of the evangelical church. And when it happens, it's disastrous. For the church is waiting and tarrying and holding back, and in some cases sitting on its hands, but it's a fact that falsehood is ravaging through the land like an unstoppable, incurable plague. The quest for materialism is siphoning off the energy of the people. Death isn't easing up. In its slaying, souls are in jeopardy of eternal burnings. Hell is rapidly filling. Millions are perishing. How can we dare to stall for time, to patiently wait for a better day, more opportune occasion, when all of this is happening and not stopping around us. How can we be so dull and dead and unfeeling and unmoved? Four months indeed! Four months! Haven't we been waiting for more than four months already? It was probably to be four months in the days of our grandparents, maybe four months in the days of our parents' Is it now still going to be a further four months, whatever that time would indicate? Well has one said, patience is of your virtue, but sometimes decision is a greater one. And so the challenge is—and this is coming through in our Lord's words here in John 4 and 35—that we should chase our indecision, that we should give up on our waiting, that we should dismantle our disbelief, take heed to the words of our Savior here, and put into practice this earnest appeal. Wake up from spiritual slumber. Say not ye that are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, the Savior is saying, open your eyes. I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. What's he saying? Expect a blessing now. What's he saying? Put your shoulder into the work in order to see it and obtain it. Don't be satisfied with anything less than a present harvest. As many will know, we are having a mission God willing, four months down the line, and I didn't choose this text to preach on for that reason. But it is relevant. And we might well be thinking, well, let's wait for the blessing coming in a tide then, when we could have it today. Say not ye that are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look in the fields, for they are white already to harvest. So, in opening up the text today, we're considering, first of all, the reasons for the harvest. The reasons for the harvest. When our Savior spoke these words, well, here's a question What indications were there around him in that day that there could be? An immediate harvest of men's souls. What indication, what signs, what tokens were there at that time? Well, think that the instrument of salvation was already at hand. Christ, the supreme speaker and preacher, he was there. And needy soul in the form of that woman of Samaria, that's the record in the chapter here. She had come to the well of Sychar. She had come there to dwell, water, to draw water. She was there. And Jesus himself, being the very Word of God incarnate, he had words that suited her case exactly and words that satisfied her craving entirely. Look at what he says to her about that gift of eternal life in John 4 and verse 14. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And as we look at this incident, the conversion of the woman at the well, we have the gospel in beautiful picture form. You're thirsty. You've been trawling through the various places on earth, looking for satisfaction for your soul. You haven't found it. You won't find it. This woman had been trying many a while, but she was not satisfied, dry as starch, the Savior said. The water that I will give you shall be in you, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And so, we have a picture of the gospel here, and we have the gospel at our disposal. Paul once spoke to those in the synagogue at Antioch, and he could say the same thing to us today, what he said in Acts 13 and 26, to you is this word of salvation sent. What does it mean? Well, the gospel has been declared to us. The gospel has been delivered into our charge. The gospel has been deposited into our hearts, and it's in our hands as well. We have it. We know it. What a privilege that is. And we are still able to announce it freely, without fear of fetters, without dread of death, in fact, without any restrictions whatsoever. Of course, if the Belfast City Council get their way, there will be restrictions. And there will be a clamping down, if not a cancelling out, of gospel preaching in the city center if some of those councillors get what they're surreptitiously aiming at. But this gospel is the remedy for man's need. It's the balm for every disease of his heart. In one of his books, E. L. Langston wrote about a strange plant that he had found in Jamaica. They called it the life plant or the leaf of life called that because he said it's almost impossible to kill or destroy any portion of it at all. When a leaf is cut off, for example, and it's hanging by a string, well, instead of shriveling up and dying like any other leaf, it sends out white thread-like roots and gathers moisture from the air and begins to grow new leaves. The leaf of life has been linked to numerous health benefits… Respiratory conditions are eased and helped, such as asthma and colds, cough, shortness of breath, a bronchitis, meant to be a good treatment for kidney stones, reaching right out to giving benefit to women who are pregnant. Supports anti diabetic activity, seems to go right across the whole sphere here in Spectrum. Benefits the skin, has been used for the healing of minor injuries, etc., etc. The word of the gospel is most definitely the leaf of life. Little wonder. After forty-one years of service for the Lord in one place, Dr. Baldwin said, I can testify that at thirty, after examining as best I could the philosophies, the religions of the world, I said, nothing is better than the gospel of Christ. At forty, he said, when burdens began to press, years began to hasten, I said, nothing is as good as the gospel. At fifty, when there were empty chairs in the home and the grave builders had done me service, I said, there is nothing to be compared with the gospel. At sixty, when my second sight, as he termed it, saw through the delusions and the vanities of earthly things, I said, there is nothing but the gospel. And at seventy, Amid many limitations, I sing, should all the forms that men devise attack my faith with treacherous art, I'll call them vanities and lies and bind the gospel to my heart this gospel, let's not be so familiar with it that it loses its luster in our minds and hearts. It's the best of all messages. It cannot be compared with any other message. There is nothing like this, and there's nothing other than this. Well, since we believe that, since we have it, what God describes as the producer of saving faith, and He does that in Romans 10 and 17, again in 1 Corinthians 1 and 18, then taking this message, can we not expect great things from God, for it is the instrument of conversion? Notice also here the implementation of conversion. When our Lord Jesus in John 4 and 35 uttered these words, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. He did that with good warrant, because he was right slap-bang in the middle of the harvest field on this occasion. He just preached a sermon. And if you want to put it like this, his complete congregation was converted through that sermon. Now, the congregation only numbered one, one solitary individual, the one woman who met him at Jacob's well. But as Jesus confronted her with the gospel of grace, she became concerned and convicted and contrite, and she got converted. One preacher said, the conversion of one soul by the gospel should be to you a hopeful sign that God intends to convert others. Here's an illustration there's a disease, and it's uncontrollable, and it's raging throughout a country. Victims all over the place are becoming infected and suffering, and they're dying in their thousands. And there's a skilled doctor, and he's been conducting a careful study of the disease, and he's noting down all the obvious symptoms and all of the relevant information that he can assemble there, and he's using a variety of drugs. But that one's failing, and this one's failing, and they're all failing. But eventually… Through his dedication, he prescribes the right one. He administers the drug. He views the patient that he's using that drug upon, rallying. Strength is being given, he can see, by his medicine, and that struggle ends with the patient being restored to health and life. Now that doctor thinks I know that multitudes of men and women are going to be saved from the ravages of this terrible disease for the same remedy that has worked for one will work for two and twenty and a thousand, even thousands of thousands. And that's how we reckon the gospel works. Other remedies have been tried. None have yielded results. And when we see the gospel work as we have done, then we should look upon that as a token for good, because if one has found the Redeemer, why should not more, even multitudes, find Him? We have the correct remedy. It has already saved many who are here today. May we employ it in much more dramatic and even dynamic fashion. Another fact. Look at the infectiousness of conversion. At the moment, our Lord is speaking. In John 4 and 35, right as he is saying this, what else was happening? The woman of Samaria is no longer at the well. She's disappeared. She's gone back into the city, and she's speaking to the inhabitants of the city, her friends. She's telling them what has happened out at the well to her that day. She's talking about the power of the Savior. Look at verse 28 and 29. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And as we read on, we find they heeded her. They came with her to Christ. They were converted as well. Verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that ever I did. Probably don't ever play dominoes now. There are so many sophisticated games available. Why would you play dominoes? But as one goes down, it sparks the whole chain reaction. And so it happened here. Like when a match is struck. And the flame drops into that dry prairie, all of a sudden you have a whole sea of fire that has engulfed the place. And that's what happened in the city of Sikarm. God's grace came and inflamed one soul, and it set spiritual fire to so many others. Is that not what Belfast needs? Is that not what our country needs today? not even in four months' time, not in four years' time, not in forty years' time. It's been barren a long time. May that soul be saved soon! That one who will spread the news like the woman at the well, who will transmit shockwaves through her or his community in the neighborhood where there are well no one, who will be the instrument in the hand of Jehovah that will lead many, many others to his pierced hands and pierced feet and his finished work, the reasons for the harvest. Then again, pursue the thought, secondly, of the requirements in the harvest. The requirements in the harvest… Our Lord doesn't leave us guessing here. He underlines the need for persons to labor. Workers. Look at Matthew 9, verse 37 and 38, because then again, he looked at the multitude around him, and they were a pitiful sight, and they were fainting, and they were scattered, and they were without a shepherd, and we're told then said he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous. But here's where the problem is, the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. A little bit of logic here. If many souls are going to be saved, then it follows there must be many— to reach them. If we are going to have a huge in-gathering, there must be a great amount of enthusiasm, excitement, energy, and effort on our part to prompt it. You can't escape that. You can't short-circuit that. There is no quick way around it or shortcut in this. There are no alternatives to this. I know the modern farmer can get us John Deere's and a lot of very sophisticated machinery now that our grandfathers could only have dreamt of as they bent over with their scythes in the field and all of that, and the farmer can purchase a whole variety of machinery. To do that harvest that years ago would have been all about manual labor, he has found his time-saving alternatives. Of course, what that does is it just opens up time to go into another field and go into another set of activities and fill up the time that he has saved with other activities but I insist, when you come into the spiritual realm, you will not find a machine. You will not find some kind of automated process. You will not be able to enlist the help of a robot or AI or anything like that to do the most essential work of soul winning. It must be done by men and by women. It must be done by us. Chosen persons, tons consecrated persons, men and women who were driven with a passion for perishing souls, who were filled with the outpouring of the power of God, who were ready to march forward, who were going to embark on this grand work of harvesting hearts for the Master. Tell me, are you up for it? What type of workers are required? Well, that's a good question. And in terms of workers, an infinite variety of people are needed, men and women, to do different and yet complementary jobs that could open up avenues for every of person here this morning to do something for Christ. You may be sitting and thinking, I don't have anything to do. I'm not involved. You should be. There's a niche that you, every single believer, can and must fill. Let me give some examples here. There are those who need to cut with a sharp sickle of the truth of God, or otherwise known in Ephesians 6 as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The reaper has to get out. Cutting out rightly dividing the word of truth, giving those leading truths of the Scriptures, telling men and women about the fall and the utter shipwreck of the human race, of the total depravity of man, of the wrath of a holy God that is like a hound coming after our sin, calling it out, sentencing it, going to punish it. Tell them about the reality of hell for all unrepentant persons. Tell them as well the good news of the gospel, the pardon that is held out through the sacrifice of the cross. Tell them about the heaven that can be gained by virtue alone of Jesus' blood. These cutters, if I can call them that, are needed. Those who are practiced hands with the Spirit's scythe. Those who can penetrate the conscience, persuade the minds of men by their sanctified and careful use of the Word of God under the Spirit of God. May we have many of those today because we need them. Those who will cement or bind are needed too. When the wheat was cut down, it used to be tied up in sheaves. That was the old-fashioned way of doing it for some of you that feel, well, God hasn't given me the ability to preach, and I can't go out, and I can't stand in the open air and preach the gospel. I can't even teach His Word in a systematic, organized way. I'm not capable of using that gospel sickle very well. Well, here's something for you to do. When your fellow workers… Of course, the wheat to be cut, go and gather it up. Invite those converted souls into the fellowship of the church. It may only be, come and sit beside me. Talk to them. Encourage them. Help them to get into union with the visible body of believers in Jesus. Do your utmost to keep the congregation knit firmly together in the love of the Spirit binding the sheaves together. And those who will comfort are also needed. There was once a missionary translator, and he was out in the mountains of Mexico, working among a tribe there, and he was finding it nearly impossible to get a word for comfort. One day, one of his helpers asked for a week's leave, and explain why they needed the week's leave, that an uncle had died, and he wanted some days off that he could visit his bereaved aunt. And here's how he described what he would do with his bereaved aunt to help her heart around the corner, to help her heart around the corner, and that missionary looking for a word for comfort. That's it. those reapers will stand in need of refreshment. They'll be tired after a while through toil. They'll be looking for a word of cheer, an expression of encouragement, kind words that will bring comfort to their souls. And those people, just one for the Savior, will need tender care. They'll need cheering counsel they'll need help with their many difficulties, they'll need advice that will help them in avoiding the adversary who will be out to get them, and you can provide that. Workers are wanted, and we should pray for every Christian to look out, where can I serve God? Where should my sphere of labor be? Where should my appointed place of service and influence for Christ, where should it be? And when I see it, let me not avoid it, but grab it with both hands. If every believer present in this building this morning would catch the vision, would be captivated by it, would become controlled by it, would become thoroughly consecrated to Christ, if everybody was dedicated to the respect of rule, this city of Belfast wouldn't need to dwell in ignorance of the gospel much longer. It would need to be in darkness if those little lamps of God were all to light up and blaze out if we were all laboring in the harvest fields that are so invitingly open to us, this country of ours, dead in its sin, could yet come alive under the power of Jesus Christ. And what are we? I recognize who we are and what we are, our limitations as well. We are few in number. We're only a mere handful. But that's compared with the other fellow Christians we have in the land, of which there are many as well. But if we were all devoted to the work of reaping, then we would most certainly see a harvest that would cause heaven itself to vibrate with joy over. And so I challenge you this morning, for the love of God, by the brevity of time, by the approach of death, through the screams of hell, for the glories of heaven. Don't, don't be idle. Do something in the service of Jesus Christ. Has he not done a tremendous thing for you? I gave my life for thee, the hymn writer put it. My precious blood I shed that thou mightst ransom be and quicken from the dead, I give my life for thee. What hast thou given for me?" And I'm praying today that laborers will be found for my Lord. And since I'm preaching to you in this congregation, those laborers will be found, that there will be men and women, young people, even boys and girls, and they'll say, look, if I can do something for the Lord Jesus, just show me what it is, and with a full heart, I will do it. When you present yourselves, you'll be able to take on the provision for this labor, the weaponry you'll need in the harvest. What is that? You'll need the precepts of the Lord, the Bible. An educated Chinese gentleman was given once a copy of the Scriptures, and he was asked, will you read it carefully? Will you read it thoughtfully? And he said, yes, in respect, I'll do that. Sometime later, he came back to his friend, and he said, what is it about this book that's so different? In all of my reading of all the literature I've ever devoured, I've read many good precepts. But until I read this book… I've never been troubled in my mind when I have done wrong. Get a grasp of the Word, learn it, meditate upon it, spread it, see the results. Prayer to the Lord is another essential piece of equipment for every Christian worker. I don't need to labor that point, but I will quote... Thomas DeWitt Townage, a prominent American preacher in a former generation, and he said, Everything depends upon our going down on our knees. The husbandman, here's the same picture as what we're in today, the husbandman in the green field swinging the scythe does not stand upright but stoops to his work. And in order, really, to bind that sheaf, he puts his knee upon it. So, in this gospel harvest, we cannot stand straight up in the pride of our rhetoric and metaphysics and erudition. We must stoop to our work. We must put our knee upon it, or the harvest will never be tossed into the garner of the Lord. There's an animal, an antelope. Gnu in Africa. And it has a very interesting habit that when it spies an enemy, what does it do? It goes down onto its knees, and then it springs into attack from that position off its knees, and to our knees it must be. There is no alternative to prayer. It must be, if we're ever to see success in a spiritual harvest, the precepts of the Lord The prayer to the Lord and, of course, the power for this labor comes from the Lord Himself. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, and we're very conscious many times that we are earthen vessels and nothing more. And the design is that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And so, we are forced to call upon, because of our utter strengthlessness, Forced to call upon the power of the Holy Spirit, ye shall receive power, we're told in Acts one and eight. After that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and then you will be witnesses unto me. So the reasons for the harvest, the requirements in the harvest, finally the ruin of the harvest. Never like to end on a sorrowful note. But through the lack of laborers. The farmer may have to leave his wheat in the field. Like the field beside my house right now, they have it full of carrots. Whenever the frost was coming in, they covered it over with straw. It's still there. You might lose it, damage to the harvest. This wheat will spear out. The birds will have a feast on it. There's a substantial loss incurred by the farmer, and it's the same in the spiritual realm. Every hour, every week, every month, say not ye, there are yet four months. Through that time, When men and women are not implored to be saved, opportunities for good are wasted, times of usefulness are being squandered, the devil is filling the hearts and minds of the population with emptiness and error and evil, and as we delay, more emptiness and more error and more evil. Spurgeon once said, I am jealous not only to have souls saved, but to have them saved while young. Why should Satan have so much of their time? Why should so many years of their influence be thrown into the wrong scale? You see, the wheat is losing its value every hour. Shouldn't we be at the work? And shouldn't we be at the work immediately? Damage to the harvest. Death of the harvest another weighty and solemn consideration. Whether we go out after the harvest or sit at home snugly by the warmth of our hearth, there is a reaper. And while we sleep, he's working. And he's silently gathering a huge harvest every hour, the black reaper of death. Check it out in the funeral Times*. On the internet. Used to be more so in the daily columns, in the newspaper, but speedily and surely and shockingly, this harvest is being reaped all around us. At a football match, for one example, on Friday night, two Bristol City fans, too young for the 17 year old, they were commemorated. They'd been stabbed to death that week. We're having it. We heard it on the news last night in our own country. We can't stop them dying. But under God, by His grace, we can prevent their destruction and their damnation if we are in the harvest field. The destruction of the harvest we can avert. Do I need to remind you and remind myself the lost are perishing. They're perishing under the crushing weight of an overwhelming destruction. Hell is being populated by their persons, being filled today by their wheels. We know that, or we say we do, and that knowledge that condemns our inactivity. Because if we don't go out to rescue them, we don't go to reap them for Jesus Christ, if we don't have that passion and burden to see them ransomed and redeemed by His blood, then their blood will be charged to our account. Won't we tell them of Jesus? Like that hymn that we sang about the gypsy boy, nobody ever told me before. Have we people just in the vicinity of this church. And yes, we can say it's been leafleted, and it has, and we thank God for that, but there's no guarantee that one of those leaflets was ever read. Have we spoken to them, told them of Jesus, Tell them God became man in order to reconcile man to God. Tell them of Calvary, its groans, its pangs, its cries, its blood, its victory. Tell them there's life for a look at the crucified Christ. Tell them He's able to save to the uttermost. All who come unto God by Him, tell them of heaven. And in your telling, may the words of E. E. Hewitt be the desire of your life in the strength of the Lord let me labor and pray, let me watch as a winner of souls, that bright stars might be mine in that glorious day when His praise, like the sea billows rolls. or Savior's questioning, say not ye, is this not what you're saying? And let's take that from the interrogative, where he's asking a question and put it to the instructive here and underline the word not. In this fashion, don't be saying, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look in the fields, for they are white already to harvest. May you and I go a out and reap that harvest now, For Jesus' glory and for our good.